So a few weeks ago, I took a marker and I went to a flip chart and I drew 666. And I share with you that you don't have to be a Bible student or somebody that goes to church to know that's a bad number, right? All the films and books that have been written, people know that that number's not cool, right? Like if that's your address or your phone number, uh, that's not good. Somebody came up to me after service, a true story, told me it was part of their social security number, right? But look, it doesn't matter. I'm just saying, everybody knows, man, there's something weird about that number. That's evil. That's like the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, right? So today we have another phrase that might be more known, the word Armageddon, okay? Conjures up all types of information. It's used in our culture. When people think Armageddon, they think the end of the world, a big battle, good versus evil, and uh, like a World War III scenario, right? Pictures of catastrophe and carnage and casualties, and believe it or not, Ben Affleck, I actually Googled Armageddon, and he's the first thing that comes up. It's only mentioned once in the Bible, Revelation 16, that's where we are. Let's read from verse 12. John says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl. Remember, these are the seven bowl judgments. On the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The Better translations say the kings of the rising sun. And I saw three unclean spirits. They were like frogs. Remember, John's trying to find imagery for all this. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, this unholy trinity. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world. That's a key phrase. To gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So there's some form of demonic activity where God will draw all nations. Now verse 15, we haven't seen the words of Jesus since chapter 3. Behold, I am coming as a thief. And here's the third blessing of Revelation of 7. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, there's our word, Armageddon. Now, we've been studying prophecy in the book of Revelation, and I want to say the study of prophecy is very important, and I want to commend you guys for hanging in there. I know a lot of what we're talking about is over your head. I know everybody's not in the same place. Here's what I do know. Uh, take out prophecy in the Bible, and we lose a lot of evidence for what we believe. Hundreds of prophecies about the nation of Israel and the birth of Christ, which we all believe in, uh, the resurrection, and then there's so many about his second coming, and of course, nations and Israel in the second coming. So prophecy is, prophecy is not only evidence, listen, it's our hope. So our hope isn't that we're going to clean up the environment. I think we should clean up the environment, but that's not our great hope. Our great hope isn't in the UN that we're going to end all wars. I think we should work at it, but it's never going to work. The great hope of the church is Jesus Christ coming again. The early church coined a brand new word called Maranatha. It means, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's our great hope. The second coming, you could argue, is the greatest doctrine of the New Testament. So about nine months ago, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to read through the New Testament. And, and here's my struggle. So when I read, sermon illustrations and things pop into my mind. So I have to get another Bible and read just to read. So I'm reading from Matthew on, and this thought pops in my mind. You, cannot re you can't go a chapter in the New Testament without seeing a verse about the second coming. It's unbelievable. I'll give you one example. The pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy, 
It's all about the church. Why in the world would the second coming be there? This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. You know these verses. He says, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And we all know what that day is now. And not to me only, but to all, all that have loved his appearing. See, this was the hope of the early church. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so I commend you guys. The study of prophecy, very important. If we took Genesis out of the Bible, we'd have a tough time knowing what God required of us and why the world was ever created. If we took Revelation out, we would have no understanding how all this ends. So Jesus gives us the blessing here that we are to watch and be faithful. And it's all couched in this idea of Armageddon. And here's why Armageddon is important. Armageddon is the event that will usher in the return of Jesus Christ. When we get to chapter 19, uh, we'll look at that. So the question we're going to look at today is about Armageddon. When is it? Where is it? And why does it need to happen? Okay? A lot of people spiritualize this. They say it's a spiritual battle. And, and those who believe it's a physical battle, they don't know where to place it. Armageddon. When is it? Where is it? Why is it? Let's start with where is it? Because this will clear up a lot in your minds. First of all, it's not even a battle, okay? God is drawing all nations there, but they're never going to fight each other. God's going to fight against them. So it's not a battle. It's literally a place. Verse 16, they gather to a place called, here's the Hebrew, Har means valley. Megiddo is an ancient city. Har Megiddo is a place. I've been there many times. At the base of Mount Carmel, as you look out, is the Jezreel Valley. It is verdant and plush. It is the breadbasket of Israel. Uh, no one's ever built on it. Napoleon looked at it and said it was the greatest natural battlefield he had ever seen. Uh, Google Napoleon, by the way. He usually comes up number two on most important, influential people that ever lived. I think he knew what he was talking about. I was driving with an evangelical pastor who's on the radio. You'd all know his name. He doesn't believe Armageddon's a literal battle that will take place in Israel. And he said, look, Bob, you've been to Israel many times. You've seen that place. You really think the armies of the world are going to gather there? To which I said, wait a second. Jesus said it would happen. John said it would happen. Napoleon said it would happen. You're overruled, okay? Um, more battles have been fought there than any place in the world. Most people, when they go to Israel, have a profound experience there. It happened to my wife. Out of all the places in Israel, the garden tomb, you know, why, why this place? Because we know what will happen there. <laughs> Jesus grew up in Nazareth, very short distance from Megiddo. How many times would Jesus look over that valley knowing what John one day would write, knowing one day what would happen in that place, knowing one day that's where he would return? Now, not far from this valley is the ancient city of Megiddo. And here's what you need to understand. Look at the screen. Uh, this is a tell, T-E-L. It's an archaeological term which really signifies civilizations, and it's hard as Americans to think this way, but because thousands of years have gone by, uh, what happens is they build uh, a city. That city gets destroyed. Then centuries go by as it's uninhabited, and sand fills in, and rock fills in, and then they build another, another city, and you get layer upon layer upon layer until you see uh, the 19th civilization is at the top of a hill. It's called a tell. 
Another way to think of it is a wedding cake. You know, you put layer upon layer upon layer. Uh, the city of Megiddo was very prominent in the ancient world. I like to tell people Revelation is not the last book in your Bible. Uh, there's a book called Maps, right? For those of you who still have real Bibles. At the end, you have a lot of maps. You should look at them every once in a while. Uh, you could either say God put his people in a bad neighborhood, or he put them in a very influential neighborhood where the word of God could go out into the nations. I think it's the latter. So you look at this map, and this is modern day Israel, but it, it's never changed. The names have changed, and some things have changed. But, but if you see where God has them, they have the Great Sea to one side. They're flanked by the Babylonians and Persians. Egypt's to the south, which is a superpower, and the Syria's to the north, okay? And right in the middle is this place called Megiddo. The Romans built a road called the Via Mare. It was a trade route that ran from Egypt into Assyria. So naturally, many wars were fought in this place. Just in the Bible, uh, in Judges, Barak, uh, Barak fought the Canaanites here, Gideon, the Midianites. The Romans in 70 AD used this carter to go into Jerusalem uh, when Titus and the Romans sacked Jerusalem. Um, the Crusaders used it. The British used it. Again, more wars have been fought here. And he who had Megiddo had the ancient world. That's kind of how it worked. Now, this all is history. But when you read the Bible, sometimes when you read the Bible, you have to overlay it. There's a spiritual message. I'll give you an example. We all know the story of David and Goliath, right? Very simple story. Uh, David was a real person, so was Goliath. David kills Goliath. We think it's the greatest upset in history, right? I know some of you think the 1980 hockey upset was bigger, but trust me, this was bigger. But when you look at the story, it has a spiritual connotation. You see, Goliath was trash-talking Israel. There was a giant in their land. And everybody in Israel was afraid, even though they had armor and similar type warfare, except David, this little scrawny kid with five stones. So when you read the story, it was physical. When you read the story, you realize here in America, there's a giant in our land, isn't there? There's a giant of pornography. There's a giant of atheism. There's a giant of intellectualism. There's a giant of philosophy. There's a giant in our land. And we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and things in dark ages. And you know what God's looking for? David's. He's looking for people that will not go with the power and might of the world, right? David put on Saul's armor and it didn't work for him. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. God's looking with somebody with five smooth stones who will go in the name of the Lord. That's what God's looking for. That's what God was looking for physically and spiritually of Israel. When he put them in this land, he said they were going to drive out the Canaanites. God gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent. The Canaanites were polytheistic. They were pagan. They worshipped many gods, but chief of their gods was Baal, right, the god of fertility. And so there was this lush and verdant valley where they believed Baal gave them fertility. They gave them the rains and so forth. And so all pagan religion involved sexuality, illicit sexuality, priests and priestesses. And it also involved child sacrifice. Sometimes you read the Bible and you think, why is there so much sacrifice in the Bible? Because there was a true sacrifice which God required. And of course, false religion required the sacrifice of children. So the Canaanites literally would put infant babies. This is real and true and verified in history on an altar believing that 
it would appease the Baals and the gods. And so God put his people there to affect culture, to drive this out, to bring in the rule of law and the word of God, what we've seen here in the West. The tragedy is Israel never did it. Israel did what we were prone to, one foot in the world, one foot in the church. It got so bad in Ezekiel 23. Listen to this. It's almost hard to read. God said, on the very day they sacrificed their children to their idols, they entered my sanctuary. <laughs> Holy moly. You know what that's saying? That's saying a Jewish person got up in the morning and put an infant on an altar and sacrificed them. And then in the afternoon went into the temple and did what we're doing right now. We think these people were ancient, and yet times never change. God's called us to afflict and influence our culture. And yet we've got this great power struggle. Just like the physical battles at Megiddo, we're, we're in this cultural war where we feel like we're being sucked in, and yet God said we can rise above. Foreign nations fought over and over again for this place, and yet I think there's a great spiritual battle that God had. And Elijah comes along. You all know the story, right, at Carmel? He sets up this altar to God, and there's the altar to Baals, and the fire comes down, and everybody knows that God is God, and he rebuilds the altar. It's all that God's calling us to, is to rebuild the altar. Don't worry about the people out there. God will take care of that. It's always us rebuilding our altar. It's always us getting right with God. Now, there will one day be a final battle in this place. When is the battle? Some say it was 70 AD. That's impossible, by the way. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Uh, I believe it's the future. Why? Revelation 1.19, John was told the things thou hast seen, the vision of Christ, the things that are, Revelation 2 and 3, and the things that will shortly come to pass. That puts this way into the future. Now, even though Armageddon's only mentioned here, it's alluded to through the Old Testament. David in Psalm 2, Joel in Joel 3, uh, John in Revelation 16 and 19, Isaiah in chapter 63, Ezekiel in 37 and 38, but one of the most profound prophecies in all the Bible, I'll put it on the screen, you can look it up when you go home, is Zechariah 14. Listen, this was written 2,500 years ago. And here it is. God said, I will gather all nations of the world for battle. Did you catch that? God said, I'll gather all nations. When the Romans came in 70 AD, it was the Romans, it wasn't the whole world. In Revelation 3, when Jesus talks to the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, he said, because you have kept my word and endured, I will keep you from the hour of trial, that seven-year period we were talking about, which is coming to test the whole world. Not a little bit of the world, not the Romans, the whole world. That never happened in 70 AD. Not only that, if you look at Acts and Joel and Peter's sermon, the sun never went out, the moon never turned to blood, the stars of heaven were never shaken. This event has never taken place. A third of the earth is burned. A third of the seas are polluted. A third of the people are destroyed. It's never happened. And they will come against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken. And then the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Again, we'll look at all this when we get to Revelation 19. It's called the day of the Lord's vengeance in Isaiah. 
the winepress of the wrath of God, the great and awesome day of the Lord in Joel, the harvest, the day burning like a furnace in Malachi, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the war of the great day of God Almighty. The entire Bible talks about this place and this time. Now, this is fascinating. Zechariah wrote 2,500 years ago. And he said they would all come in this valley because their goal was to come to Jerusalem. The problem is Jerusalem didn't exist, at least under Jewish control, for 2,000 years. So you would have had a hard time believing any of this until 1948. When David Ben-Gurion stands up and says this nation shall be called Israel was the first time a nation had ever gone out and come back as a nation. Then 1967, they get full jurisdiction over Jerusalem. Now, I don't have to convince anybody what Zechariah said when he said he would make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all nations, not some, all. So when the President of the United States gets up and says, hey, we're going to put our embassy in Jerusalem, we're going to move it from Tel Aviv, it's front page news everywhere. And by the way, the emperor has no clothes. Every embassy, every other embassy is in Jerusalem because that's where all their administrative buildings are. We're the only ones that put an embassy in Tel Aviv, okay? But it's world news. It's a cup of trembling 2,500 years ago. But there's something even more fascinating. In verse 12, it says that this angel will pour out a bowl and will dry up the river Euphrates. Now, we saw this earlier, that when the river drives up, it makes the way for a 200-million-man army. Perk up your ears for a second. I'm not sure John knew there were 200 million people in the world when he wrote. You know, he's just a secretary writing. Lord, 200 million? For real? Like, are you kidding? 200 million? This is a fisherman, right? Counts on his fingers like Rocky, probably. 200 million? The kings of the rising sun. China has 1.7 billion people. China in the 90s said they had a 200 million man army. Throw in Japan and other Asian countries, throw in ragtags from rural enclaves in China. John's not far off. Zechariah is not far off. Many of these things, we're starting to get a glimpse. So we know where Armageddon is. The reason you all came today is when is it, okay? Should I put my dog to sleep? Should I cancel my credit cards? Like, hey, we all want to know when it is, right? Well, Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. So all the speculation is bunk, right? However, in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus said there would be signs. When you see the fig tree, which is Israel blossom, know that summer's coming. So when the leaves come out, you know summer's coming, right? We're kind of in that season. Fig tree blossomed in 1948. Jerusalem, 1967. Uh, Jesus gave us signs like birth pains upon a woman. In 1945, General Douglas MacArthur, I don't know if you read anything about MacArthur, but he was brilliant beyond military. Uh, brilliant writer, just a remarkable man. He said, we have our last chance. We have had our last chance. If we will not devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. Here's, here's what MacArthur knew. MacArthur knew that the atom bomb changed everything. That atom bomb, by the way, is a joke today. Israel has 300 nuclear weapons. Every Western country has them. Um, 
Many non-Western countries have them. Rogue nations are going to get them. And when military men sit in rooms today, here's what they know. Man has never invented a weapon he hasn't used. Okay? MacArthur used Armageddon like I used it earlier, some great war, right? Then Ronald Reagan comes along in 83. He said, you know... For the first time ever, everything is in place for the battle of Armageddon. And then he ties on what we're looking at today and the second coming of Christ. And he was governor then in 83, that was 71. In 83, he said, you know, I turned back to the ancient prophets in the Old Testament and the signs for telling Armageddon, and I find myself wondering if we're the generation that's going to see this. I don't know if you noticed any of these prophecies lately, but they certainly describe our times. It's almost 40 years ago. In his book, Till Armageddon, Billy Graham said, there's no doubt that global events are preparing the way for the final great day of history, the great Armageddon. You say, Pastor Bob, people have been saying this forever. No, they haven't. They may have been saying Jesus is coming forever, but they didn't think Armageddon was coming. There was never a scenario that would fulfill Jesus' words if those days weren't short and no flesh would survive. This has never, ever happened. So when is it? Again, we can't speculate. Uh, We do know when it is in chronology. It's at the end of this seven-year period. So quick review. The next thing on God's calendar is the rapture. Everybody believes in a rapture. It's just timing. I believe God will take the church away. Why? It's the blessed hope. Why in the world would our blessed hope be around for the things we've been reading in here? That's A. B, in Revelation chapter 3, it says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We never see the church after chapter 3 in Revelation. We see Israel and the saints, to which commentators say, Oh, no, 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 you you got it wrong. Israel's the church. But wait a second. In the New Testament, the church is the church for 26 books and three chapters of the 27th book. I'm supposed to believe now Israel's the church? It doesn't work. The rapture happens. God takes away the preservative, what's holding this world together. There's a calamity. A man of peace arises, puts all the pieces back. There's a one-world economy. He he makes peace with Israel. Right at three and a half years, Israel's double-crossed. The false prophet puts an image of the beast, and God draws all nations to Armageddon. Now the burning question is, why? Why does God end it this way? Could have ended it a thousand other ways. In Noah's day, it was a flood. The reason why God will end it this way is because he's a God of love. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Sounds strange to believe all this carnage and war and destruction is all about love, but it is. See, again, we judge God in snapshots Because we're Americans, we think that the 70 years we live are the most important and the only ones that ever happened. We are so messed up when it comes to history and chunks and epics of time. For instance, turn on any TV or radio and you'll hear every preacher talking about how this is your day and everything's going to work out for you, right? Do you realize there were 399 years of generations of people that lived in Egypt that were never delivered? Did God not care about them? Was it not their day? Right? 400 years people cried out for deliverance. 
We forget that God humbled an empire once. It's all in, through the Bible. It's everywhere. The exodus out of Egypt is everywhere. It's in the Psalms. It's, it's in almost every book of the Bible. How did God humble Egypt? Systematically. Each plague destroying one of their gods. He was taking their society away pillar by pillar. And then when they were finally released, they knew it was by his mighty hand. The only thing they had to do was slay an animal and put blood on the door. They would know forever and ever it was not their might, it was not their power, it was not their ingenuity. They would know forever and ever God brought them out with a mighty hand. It's the same thing God's doing here. God will systematically take apart this creation that he has started. Because he loves people, because he made a covenant with Israel, he abhors evil and oppression, and because the world we look at is not the world he made. Now here's where it gets weird. When we look at suffering and injustice, and by the way, we're the justice generation, right? When we look at suffering and injustice in the West, it moves us away from God. This is very strange. So in the West, where we've educated ourselves to death, we think any form of injustice means there's no God. Because if there is, he could have, should have done something about it, right? And generally, we know what he should have done. But in the developing world where people really do suffer, it draws them to God. Very strange concept. I'll give you an example. So slaves are brought here from Africa, right? And they learn English. And they start to learn the Bible because their owners supposedly are Christians. And when they start to read the Bible, they start to see there's this great God of deliverance. And so the church becomes the cornerstone of African people in this country, and what happens? It leads to their deliverance. See? So in other words, people that were oppressed latched onto this and found freedom. Today, if something goes wrong, there's no God. Now, God looks at this injustice and says, that's enough. And again, God's time is different than ours. A day is a thousand years with God, a thousand years one day. God judges time by morality, right? When the flood came, God said, my spirit won't strive with man, and he brought the flood. If God would allow society to continue, we would destroy ourselves. That's why at Babel, God said, you know, let's go down and confuse their language because there's nothing they're trying to do they won't accomplish. We would have been long gone if God let this thing go. So in his love and mercy and his grace, he comes along and systematically breaks down this system and Armageddon ushers in the second coming of Christ. Chapter 19. For a thousand years, there'll be no war, no economic imbalance, no false religion, no military industrial complex. I assume there'll be no hospitals except maybe to have babies. And then something miraculous is going to happen. The people that God made a covenant with 4,500, 5,000 years ago? Zechariah gives us another verse. On that day, and we all know that day, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Every scholar worth his salt knows that word pierced is crucifixion, and Zechariah wrote before it even existed. And they will mourn for me as one would grieve for literally an only son. It's never happened. 
It never ever happens. But it'll happen that day. It will be a day when all wrongs will be made right. And for a thousand years, God will prove out that the world he made was a just world. It was a world where if we would allow him to govern, things would work the way he intended them to work. Do you know why the early church cried, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Because they had no hope in government. They had no hope in man. They had no hope in systems. And we're like the proverbial frog being boiled in water because we're saying, oh my gosh, look what we're doing. We're cleaning up the environment and we've done this and you know, we've got the United Nations and great things are happening and now we're educated and yeah, and they thought that in Germany too. And they put six million people in ovens. And the last time I checked, that was 70 years ago. You're either gonna bank on man or you're gonna bank on God. I'm gonna bank on God. Armageddon will be, and this is hard to imagine, see, because we grew up thinking about white lies, right? Oh, I just, that was just a white lie. Or, well, I I just took a bite out of this fruit. That's all Eve ever did, she took a bite out of the fruit. But James says that sin starts small, like leprosy, it grows, and then finally it destroys everything. That one sin in a garden left unchecked brings you to Armageddon. That's where it brings you. And this time God will come in and he'll set everything right. And this is our great hope. So we're going to take communion in a few minutes. And until I read the Bible, I never realized this, but Paul says as often as you take it, Some Christians take it every day, some churches every week, some churches once a year. He said, as often as you do, there's no regulation. Watch this. You remember the Lord's death, which we should, right? The death and resurrection, until he comes. The bookends of our faith. I grew up in a church and never heard of the second coming of Christ. Never, ever. Never heard that communion was about all that Jesus had done and all that was yet to be done. So the worship team's gonna come out. While the elements are handed out, we're gonna scroll some of the verses about the second coming. Some of them are from the Old Testament, some from the New. Zechariah said, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. First Thessalonians, Paul, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his people, 2 Thessalonians, when the Lord appears in heaven, he will come with his mighty angels. Jude 1.14, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. In Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. And the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, that's you and me, followed him on white horses. It's our future.